Hey everyone, you're listening to the Modern People Leader Podcast. Today's episode is a part of our Work Expert series, where we talk to some of the top thought leaders out there about the future of work. MPL family, stop what you're doing and take five seconds to go subscribe to the MPL Weekly Digest. Every week, we'll share the top three takeaways from the episode, along with the full transcript. Just go to the show notes for this episode and click the link to subscribe. And now, without further ado, enjoy the show. Vivian, welcome to the Modern People Leader. How are you doing today? I'm, well, I'm going to be blunt with you. Uh, my mother just passed away. So, uh-huh. uh, you know, we all sometimes have things like this when, when your mother gets to choose her own terms late in her life. It, it's heartbreaking, but she had a wonderful life. And it's a sunny day, and there's still so much to do in her spirit. So um, I am getting by. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to, to hear that. Um, yeah, that's, that's tough. But uh, I'm glad that you were still able to, like, I think, you know, before we hit record, you were saying that you had a relaxing day. You were able to get some sunshine. You went, I think you said, on a walk with your kids. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, double whammy of of two separate types. Obviously, I'm still heartbroken about my mother, but uh, just to remind uh, me that I'm human, I spent 18 hours at O'Hare Airport Friday through Saturday waiting to fly home due to cancellations. So sometimes life doesn't go your way and you just get to move forward and make the most of it. So you're right. It is a great and relaxing day. Yeah. And um, so we, we start every episode actually with good news stories. And uh, yeah, we all just take a moment to sort of reflect on something that's that's happened recently. Could be personal, could be work-related. Um, sounds like maybe like... I took this in the wrong direction then. <laughs> no, that... <laughs> That's okay. uh, sleeping in a in a chair at O'Hare uh, after spending a month bedside with my mom is probably not an uplifting story for your listeners, but my life is wonderfully overfull. I had the coolest job in the whole world. I get to help people for free. And uh, it's amazing. And the simple truth is getting reminded that I do have an exceptional life is really worthwhile. When when my son was diagnosed with, with type 1 diabetes, and we spent four days in the Oakland Pediatric Intensive Care Unit, we got to go home as a family, and we got to see that other families didn't. And it reminds you what kind of a responsibility you have to everyone else around you, that even when things are hard for you, someone else still needs your help. It isn't just about receiving it. So I'm going to take my two truly tragic and pretty crummy experiences and just remind me that there's a lot more to do in life. Love that. Steven, do you want to, do you want to go next on your good news story? Yeah, I'll go next. So my good news, we, I co-parent, so I have two daughters, uh, 13 and 11, and usually I, you know, it's typical like every other weekend custody that I have, except for the month of July in which 
we get to spend the entire month together and it is um it's just some it's been amazing so the entire month of july the last day of which is today so i am also kind of in a reflective i wouldn't say sad but you know it's the end of something that has been really really awesome and um and kind of going back into the normal the normal routine with school starting in a couple of weeks here in Texas. And so my good news is that the month was absolutely awesome. And for those that are in similar scenarios, it it it's hard when you only get glimpses of time with your children to like see the bigger picture. Like, how are you developing? Who are you as a human? Like, you know, because you have to spend like the little time you have just like, you know, how are you doing? Good. Okay. We're good. Like, okay, let's have dinner. Like, you know, and so to be able to be together for an entire month and see, get to know Astrid and Cora at a deeper level is, is really a beautiful thing. And the vacation and the things like, those are all great. Also, like we went to LA, spent a week there, went to Disneyland, which was awesome. And so my good news is just, it's been an amazing month with my daughters and I've really gotten to get caught up in a, in a deep level. And, and that's just a beautiful thing. That's awesome. And I bet, I bet the girls love spending the last couple of weeks with you. So I bet they're going to be a little bit sad, <laughs> not, not seeing it's you tough. for a little while. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah. So I'm struggling with my good news story today honestly, but I, I will say, so, so Steven and I, we are trying to figure out like what the next, like what does the future of the modern people leader look like? So right now we just have the podcast, but I think there's a future in which we have other products or services, or we don't even really know yet. Like we don't know what the next step for the modern people leader is, but we started that process today. So we had our first customer development interview. We just so happened to have a huge network of, of people leaders because we've had on so many people leaders to the podcast. And um, yeah, we had our we had our first interview today. And I, I feel like we came away from that call with some really interesting insights. And uh, I don't know, I'm still sort of processing that first interview, but I feel like it went really well. I'm excited for whatever it is that we decide to tackle next. Like, I, I think Vivian, you in an interview that I listened to, you said people bring you problems and you solve them. So we're going through that process right now. Like we have like a few problems that we think are interesting and worth solving. So it's like validating which problems we should be solving. And um yeah, it was just cool to kind of kick off that process today. I um for various reasons I got interested in TV and film writing. And there's a, a podcast. I won't mention it. I don't want competitors for you guys, but it's about professional television writing. And they have this term called breaking the story. When you're just getting going, you got a room of writers trying to figure out what are we going to, what is a season of television going to look like? Then you got to break the story. And although I was into the space of sort of solving problems, if you will, as a scientist and then as an entrepreneur and now philanthropically, I, I loved that concept and realized the starting point for me across 12 companies and many scientific projects and, and again, many more philanthropic is always breaking the story. And in some ways it's, it's the funnest part, but 
the success is predicated on it. There's a, a an idea which is probably all of you listeners have heard by now. It's gotten out there, but really living it. That the hard thing for leaders or problem solvers isn't coming up with answers. It's identifying the right question. And in my line of work, especially because nowadays I pay for all this stuff, we just give away whatever we invent. All I care about is that it makes a positive difference in the world. And so being there and breaking the story on a new product, on new concepts for your existing business, it's it's incredibly fun, but kind of scary because there's so many things that are possible uh, that are just out there. I have one additional twist usually for my projects, which is if someone's come to me for help, it's reasonable to assume nothing else is working. No one calls up the crazy mad scientist first uh, and says, my son can't enter REM sleep and yet somehow is still alive. Please save his life. Or our country's education policy, despite being everything that the World Bank and the UN tell us to do, it isn't helping. And if all that stuff helped, Presumably, we'd already understand the question that we should be answering, but it hasn't. So you got to start all over again and really push hard. It's super old school. My favorite is five whys. Don't just answer the first one or a couple. Take it to its absurd conclusion. If you truly believe in what you're doing, there is some point down the why chain where there's something that just sounds a little bit crazy. And that may well be the thing that's transformative in the space, whatever that space may be. And I've had the chance to work on so many different kinds of problems. So this is a generalization across medicine and education and, and neuroscience and workforce and all these different things. If it's about people, I'm interested. But if it's about people, it's messy and ugly. And there are no simple answers. And so stop starting with the answers and start with the questions, but don't just, again, I bet everyone's heard that. Don't just take it as a line, like live it religiously, own the whole problem. So now I'm preaching to you as though you'd somehow solicited my advice on how you should go about expanding your product concept here. But I, well, I love the moment that you're in right now. Yeah. And, and to your point, I guess something that I still haven't fully processed from that interview earlier today was that or that some of the problems that we surfaced from this this interview almost feel like unsolvable problems. And Stephen was like, we might find that this is the problem that we hear the most from these interviews, but what if it's like unsolvable? And I guess what I'm hearing you saying is maybe we should be like crazy enough to actually try to solve this unsolvable problem. So I don't know. I It'll be interesting to hear and, and and see what we get from the rest of these interviews and what we end up deciding to, you know, keep asking more and more questions about. I guess if I were going to throw in one more piece of advice, and, and you, again, you guys probably are already digging under the surface, but it is what people say is real and useful information. What people say on Facebook is real and useful information. It's also lies 
It's lies they tell themselves. It's lies they tell other people about who they want to be. So being able to take all of that information and look, you know, in the language of machine learning, we might call it a, a latent factor, hidden causes. Look at those missing qualities that might be producing what all of these different people are saying. They may be noting something which sounds impossible to solve, but if you can dig underneath what's driving their comments, then maybe there's something there. You know, if you think of the problem space almost more like an ecosystem rather than something that has some quick, easily identifiable solutions. And now you're thinking, well, maybe the problem here is that we need to shift around some of the ecological factors in subtle ways to produce some big effects. And yeah, so it comes back to that a lot for me is where's the hidden thing here that no one's saying, but if you look across all those interviews, it's there. So a good thing is then different kinds of stakeholders. So when I did a project with the Make-A-Wish Foundation, talking with the Medical Advisory Board, talking with the people, the wish granters, the ones that actually go ring the doorbells, talking with the families, get triangulating across all of their different feelings. And then from that, what's hidden here? What's possible? And the absurd conclusion there is, I wonder if we could actually increase the likelihood that these kids survive. If we could, we can't change the wish. That's theirs. If they're going to Disneyland, hang out with uh, Stephen and his family, then that's what they're doing. But maybe this kind of kid, uh, you should give him a little nudge. What if you brought your three best friends with you? We'll pay for it. And it turns out for certain kids, making a wish more social increases their survival rates. And so the actual answer is this tiny little thing, building a little machine learning system that could provide nudges. But the question, a, a crazy huge question is, does granting a wish change the life outcomes of these kids and their families? How does it affect divorce rates, survival rates, economic outcomes? When a kid that was going to seemingly pass away no matter what doesn't, does it change the way the whole neighborhood be behaves? And it turns out the crazy answer here is yes, it does. And it didn't take magic though to sort of improve those outcomes. It just took understanding, hey, you know what? People are a little bit different. If we could just provide those wish granters a couple of little hints before they ring the doorbell, that could really change some outcomes here. Simple, but kind of a hidden cause, a simple little solution, if you will, and a pro potentially profound outcome that you've made a meaningful difference in something as fundamental as life or death. But some of these kids, there's going to be a hard end to that story. Uh, is there something that this experience can even pass on to their family, as I mentioned, like divorce rates? So again, coming in there and being able to find that hidden thing, that hidden question. Once I'm there, it's not that things become easy, but now it becomes easy to say, no, we don't need to look at that. We don't need to consider this. 
And not only is it easy for me, it's easier for my lab and my companies as well, because we can all see those same one or two whys behind what we're doing and kind of align around them. And I'm a big collaborator, so I love the idea that you, what you can discover in this discovery process is something that, in fact, you can bring out to the entire team as a guide for everything going forward. And what I love about what I'm hearing, what you're sharing, Vivian, is I heard, I think part of the magic of this podcast is that Daniel and I bring such different perspectives. And we were also, we've worked together, we're friends, we're, we're, we're relatives. So we, it's quite easy for us to have differing points of view, but still get to the same endpoint. And it's just been such a joy in so many different ways. And with this process, what I heard is you, a process like this is really important because it helps you get to the real problem, not the problem that you think is the problem, but by following an approach, like asking the five whys, you get to truly like get at what's really behind this, not your feelings about the thing and not your, this, the disappointments or the frustrations, but the, the actual problem. And when you get there, if you are truly passionate about your mission, you will find, you, you could find a solution. And that's where I think we're headed. It's not that these problems are so, there's a lot of challenges right now for people leaders. Like <laughs> for our audience, you guys are hearing us talk about these. That's why this podcast exists. And for every single podcast that we, that we push out, we're having five to 10 conversations with people leaders on the record, off the record. And so there's no shortage of, of challenges right now. There are some really big disconnects in our space. And the question is, how can we help with whatever that most painful one is that actually relates to the sphere of work that we do? That is the one that we want to be focusing on. And I, I agree with you. I think when you, and I, and I love the Make-A-Wish Foundation example, because that's something that for the people that were involved in that project or initiative, there's a lot of passion behind that, right? You're talking lives, you're talking children, future leaders of this country or the world. So, you know, I, uh, I think the one thing I'll give Daniel is because he's spearheading this effort is his conviction for what is going on in the world of work. It, it is the reason we started the podcast. A lot of people might think that it was me because I've had like a full career, 20 year career in, in, in HR, but it, that's not it. It's, it's really Daniel and his view and vision for what is happening and where things are going. And so, so I think we'll get there, but. The interesting thing for the, my, my last kind of antidote here is that we both have identified our own problems and they're on our list of five potential problems. And today, right out of the gate, the first interview, he chose a problem that was neither Daniel's nor my initial problem that we thought like, this is it. If we do this, this is really going to help us take the business to the next level. And I, and I feel like that's the most important part of this story is like you're as an entrepreneur, as a creator, you have great ideas and you're super passionate, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're the right ideas. And so by going through this exercise, we're going to get a lot of, a lot of data and that helps point us to the right direction. And so I'm excited about that. It is an exciting time. And and I, I'm not going to break into a whole different area here, but I have a whole line of research looking at innovation itself and collective intelligence. And 
And the one comment is, uh, all things being equal, diverse teams are always smarter because the whole job in innovation is discovering the new idea and bringing people together, diverse in the ways that are such a challenge for America, but also diverse in, in all sorts of different ways. And the, the difference that you just elucidated between the two of you is an example of just that thing. And then bringing in these leaders, letting the ideas bubble again. I, I envy you being at the front end of that experience. So b before we do talk about innovation and collective intelligence, I I want to give our listeners like some context for for who you are. And we typically like to get like the full, you know, like career journey and story. It sounds like you've done a lot. Did you say you've started 12 companies? I yeah. This is by the way why I'm a terrible radio interview. What are we <laughs> half an hour into this and I haven't even really introduced myself and they weep when they see me at a television studio. Uh, so it's, um, yeah, I, over the years, I was just sort of curious going back way back in one case, my very first company, believe it or not, was a film company called hard drive productions. And despite the name, it was not porn. Um, it was the very early age in the nineties of like digital film production. And so, we thought we were being clever. And you add that in, my wife and I started a couple ed tech companies together. I launched a couple of HR tech companies. Right now I have a couple of neurotech companies. And then you throw in being the founding chief scientist of, of a few and, and a board, founding board member on a couple of others. Yeah, amazingly enough, despite having no real business instincts whatsoever. I love inventing things, but my dirty secret is I start companies to trick venture capitalists into funding my experiments. And it turns out as long as you pay them back, they never catch on. So yeah, I mean, I'm fundamentally a scientist with way more heart than good business sense. I think that's like a the, the inverse of a backhanded compliment right then. But nonetheless, I've had a couple of, of really lucky successes along the way, and it's given me a lot of freedom for what I get to do now. But yeah, there you go again, 10 minutes to give you the answer, yes, I've started or been involved in starting 12 companies. Uh, and I love it. I, I just, what I love about it is solving problems. It's what I loved about science. It's what I love about entrepreneurship. It's what I love about philanthropy, solving problems. And now Socos Labs, that's the main thing, right? So believe it or not, I'm the chief scientist of a company called Dionysus Health, where we're using a combination of artificial intelligence and epigenetics to do something no one's ever done before, which is predict women's risk for postpartum depression, as well as perimenopausal depression, but postpartum before they've ever even become pregnant. Uh, and that's a huge thing, most common complication of pregnancy is postpartum depression and the vast majority of sufferers either never get diagnosed or at the very least never get treatment and amazing if you could do a blood test i'm on the board of a company i've got a little box behind me perfect for podcast where it's a, a great visual medium but this box is a very expensive light produced by a company called optoceutics I'm on the board and a scientific advisor, a principal investigator. 
we're working on treatments for Alzheimer's and cognitive decline. And in keeping with my gloomy start to this whole conversation, I'm now quite inspired to use this for aphasia, one of the complications of stroke, where you lose the ability to speak, or in some cases, even understand speech. And I think it can help in that space as well. Uh, imagine being able to read a book by a light and having it change the trajectory of your cognitive health in your life. And then, yeah, Socos Labs, essentially a philanthropic lab. People bring me challenging problems or we cook them up internally. And if I think we can make a meaningful difference, I pay for everything. Whatever we invent, we give away. As I frequently say, it's the worst startup idea of all time. Infinite demand, zero revenue, but it's also the best job in the whole world. And then I, I remember you uh, talking about the data trust. Can you can you share a little bit about that as well? Yeah. So starting from the lab for years and years, I uh, I even wrote a long essay, and it's becoming a part of a, a chapter in a new book about some of the ethical challenges, particularly around artificial intelligence. But they're true of data in general. Your health data, for example, is federally protected data. And yet, as soon as it gets in any way outside of the healthcare system, uh, i.e. not a literal doctor or someone providing care, it gets resold. And so in looking at what's necessary and what's out in front of Congress right now is, hey, federal government, let's regulate AI. I think there's a role for certain kinds of regulation, but I don't want to get us in a boring legislative discussion. I think that there's a role for companies in, in audits. You audit your financials or no one will invest in you. You should, you should not just allow, you should actively brag about audits done on your data and algorithms, showing you're actually doing what you claim you're doing. Otherwise, why am I going to invest in you? Why am I going to give you my data? But there's a third ingredient. We ourselves are dramatically underpowered. And maybe this is the American in me, but I want a balance of powers. And I'm about as an empowered a computational person as you could be. But honestly, uh, what am I going to do? How am I really, am I going to break the terms of use with Google or Facebook or Amazon? So there's this idea, it's been around for a long time, called data trust. A trust is a legal concept, which holds things of value, like a land trust, holds things of value in proxy for another person, but it's sole fiduciary responsibility is to those people. And the idea of a data trust, and we've launched the Socos Foundation Data Prince, it's an independent nonprofit, and it holds data, particularly stuff related to being human, health data, education data, legal data, anything that truly is you. And violations of it are civil rights violations. But let's be honest, how would you know if such a thing ever happened? How would you know you got passed over for a loan because you had the wrong last name? So with the data trust concept, people, members, put their data into the data trust and the trust itself, sole fiduciary responsibility is to protect it, but in service of something. In this case, your health, your education. 
And we actually even run the algorithms. So if an outside group wants to come in and use your data, it's kind of like a credit union meets the app store because they submit it. We audit the algorithm, make sure it does what it claims. And then we run the thing uh, ourselves. So your data never even leaves our servers. So that would be an example of taking an idea to its crazy extreme. If you truly want to protect data, then we've got to just start blindly sharing it around with groups we know are abusing it. So there's tons of technical nerdy stuff. We can talk about federated learning and isomorphic encryption and all this sort of stuff. But what it really boils down to is we need to collectivize our data a little bit so that we have a voice in how our own personal data, sometimes coming out of our bodies, gets used. And it should get used solely in our self-interest, not in anyone else's. So that's the crazy data trust idea. And I decided the next time I started a company, I was going to put my money where my mouth was. And uh, this is Dionysus, that healthcare company. We don't own the data. The data trust does. All the data we collect about you from fancy natural language processing, predicting stress levels through to epigenetics, it goes into the data trust and we can, believe it or not, even though we're the ones causing it to get generated, we can only touch it with the permission of the trust. And even then the trust runs the algorithms. So that's the concept there. But the beautiful thing from a human standpoint is it's full of amazing things, like a tool to help parents with their kids. Well, Want to come up with an idea for a great little activity to do with your kids tonight? Here it is for free. You want to know whether we think maybe you're a little stressed out and what you might do with it? Well, our algorithm noticed that you walk to work on Tuesdays and you're a little less stressed. Hey, maybe you should try taking a walk on this Thursday and let's see what happens. So a lot of fun with machine learning for a nerd like me, but really, really boils down to is how do you build a better person and how do you leverage something so that it's not just in service of Jeff Bezos or Larry Page who don't need to be villains for a simple statement to be true. What's in their self-interest? is not always going to be in yours and really changing those relationships. So it's a big dream. It's a giant boil, boil the oceans kind of problem and approach. But I thought, let's prove that this can actually work. And then we can take the next step as to how to make a, a to really transform the whole process. So Vivian, in no way do you have to worry about nerding out on any, yeah, feeling like we're nerding out because Daniel and I love all of this. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're nowhere near as smart as you. <laughs> Daniel's Daniel's wife is a machine learning engineer and he always says like, yeah, I'm not the brains. <laughs> she literally brains. has her like a research paper sitting next to me here on the desk and I have no idea what any of this means. But One of my favorite things to do, I said I enjoy, but uh, before we started the chat here, I, I had a relaxing day of reading some research papers. And one of the fun things about my life is I don't just read neuroscience papers anymore. I read economics papers, sociology, whatever works. I'm a total mercenary when it comes to research nowadays. 
But another fun part is just going through the latest science nature proceedings, the National Academy of Science, and just reading the titles from outside of my field, particularly astrophysics or sort of material sciences, where the titles, I, I know what all of the individual words mean, and they're just put together like total gibberish nonsense. It is my favorite thing to just go out in front of my staff and start reading paper titles and giggling about them. And they hate it. They hate that I'm wasting <laughs> their time uh, reading paper titles that I don't even understand. But it, it just tickles me that um, some human being, maybe just six of them, think I've just said the most important 13 words in the world. Uh, and to everyone else, it's total gibberish. <laughs> that is so awesome. So I want to I want to dive into a couple of things that you you've already mentioned. We we've been doing what we call state of the union on talent. It's a newish kind of segment of of the show that we started this year and since this is the the context and your experience and what you do is a little different, we have an, the opportunity to kind of broaden that a little bit or kind of look at the same question, just different, different contexts. And so I want to do a state of the union on AI, just period. And then we can talk about leadership, people, leadership, the workplace. And so give us a lay of the land. You started going into, you, you touched on the late legislative kind of aspect and the conversations that are going on right now around AI. And, and I think this is really, really important, right? Because I think as I'm finding, we, Daniel and I talk about AI literally every day. <laughs> every time we connect, AI is coming up. Not so much because we are experts in it or we are so, we are excited about it, but it's mainly because it's a function of the conversations we're having. It's coming up in every single conversation we're having. And what is really scary to me is when I talk to other people about it, particularly older friends or like my peers, because I'm older. There's a, a genuine lack of understanding around what we are really debating here and what the future looks like and how much is it could be a done deal, like the ship has sailed type of thing, and how much is still up for debate. And in my mind, I, I, I believe the ship has sailed. Like it's, if, it's too late to bottle this thing up. And it, what's really scary to me is that there's so many people that don't understand, have never even used ChatGPT or a generative AI tool. And I'm, I'm just choosing that because that seems to be the most consumer facing, the most, yeah, I guess, friendly start for those that haven't really. You can go play anyone who actually doesn't just speak English, speaks any number of languages, could go play with it right now and have the sense that there's something there, right? that on some level you're having a conversation or at least interacting with something that feels other while also being maybe a little human. And unlike something like a diffusion model that's generating images or deep learning doing medical diagnostics, this is something that kind of lives in people's everyday life. We talk to people all the time in casual conversation and yeah, in casual use, GPT, or we could throw in Bard from Google or any number of, of alternatives, 
it feels a bit like that. It feels like that as this isn't a regular conversation, right? It's like a conversation with a slightly overtrained clerk somewhere that's being really differential and nice and has for some reason been taught to use bullet points when none are required. But it's there. So uh, let me say, for me, this has is dumb luck that I'm in a position to answer anything about this. I literally flipped a coin to decide what I should major in years and years ago, economics or neuroscience, came up heads. So that's where I study. And then even more dumb luck, it was a cognitive neuroscience program. And I did really well in the first computational course I took. And the person recommended me to work in this place called the Machine Perception Lab as a research assistant. So in 1999, without any intention or planning, I got introduced to machine learning for the purpose of studying the brain. But still, my first ever project was building a face recognition system for the CIA to do lie detection, which is, and again, in 1999, forget the ethical question here for a moment, which I am happy to discuss, but just imagine you're a huge science fiction fan, and now your undergraduate honors thesis can tell if someone is smiling or not. Like, that's a little spooky. And by the way, that undergraduate lab spun off, became a startup. It's uh, Amazon, uh, uh, Apple's uh, face recognition team. So if anyone listening has wow. an iPhone and you open it by smiling at your phone or you've ever used an emoji or anything like that, we worked on that 25 years ago. Um, wow. So, like, that was my introduction. And on some level, I intimately knew how it was working and what was going on. It was machine learning. This isn't like the old school if-then sort of things, but it was simple enough you could really keep track. Then, let's say, 2006 to 8, people, everyone started playing around with trying to make deeper whether you call it a neural network at the time or not doesn't really matter. And again, I don't want to get caught up in total nerd shit here. Oh, sorry. Uh, but these more complex networks. I was, other labs were, but this one guy, Jeff Hitton, really kept the face on neural networks, developed the first what are called deep belief networks, and they just destroyed the competition in image recognition or as DARPA calls it, target acquisition. It's not a joke, by the way. It is really what the Defense Advanced Research Projects considers object recognition. So that was a big transformative moment. Before then, AI was a curiosity. It was science fiction. It was science. It wasn't a practical thing. Now we have the first systems that could make a difference in the real world. Now, keep in mind, this is 2006, 8. We're years, more than a decade away from that. And it's still just hidden in some sense. Yeah, there's tons of things that you probably don't realize. We're on a Zoom chat right now. If we wanted to, we could turn on real-time transcription. In 1999, if you had told me that you could for free throw in real-time te real text of a one-time ever conversation 
I would have thought that was science fiction. And now we don't even think of it as an impressive feat. Or the, even just the, the face recognition on, on a phone works at all, much less complex processing. So all of that is a huge transformation. And then the, all of the work that I do, all of my companies have been AI-based. There's a reason I'm, I'm leaning into some bona fides here. All of my philanthropic projects, 90% of them, somehow incorporate some significant machine learning into the process. And GPT-4 and BARD and others, they're amazing. They're genuinely transformative technologies. Big leaps, not just as a technology, but even within the space of AI. Here's where I'm going to take it in a slightly different direction. It's just so no one understands because this has become very confused in the media. These are the world's most sophisticated autocomplete programs. And what truly blows me away is how much that can accomplish. The world's most sophisticated autocomplete can pass a medical license exam, can pass a legal bar exam, it can get fives on most of the graduate entrance exams. There's all sorts of amazing things that it can do, and I use it regularly. But I hear over and over again how it's reasoning and thinking, and that's not what it's doing. It is it, taking it, the... Sorry, go. No, no, I, I want to stop right there. And so how do we get from that, that 1999 version of you that would have been blown away if to, to, to see where we are today? Like, can you walk us through that phase of history? How do we get from that, that point in time to today where these generative AI tools can, can complete an interest exam to Harvard or to MIT Things that like only the smartest minds could accomplish before, like that is just like, and they could do it in seconds. Uh, how do so, we get and here? that? That by the way, that is a crucial thing. Often when I'm talking to a business audience, I skip the equations and I say, "Here's two definitions of AI. One is a boring, uh, generic one, which is it's any autonomous system that can make decisions under uncertainty." If there's no uncertainty, then intelligence isn't really needed. We might call that robotic process automation. Fill in this form, execute an if-then process. But how fast should this car be going as it takes a left turn in a rainy night? This resume, should I forward this for a human for review on a potential hire? Should I give this person a loan? There's no right answers to these questions. But certainly there are better answers. And that has largely been the domain of being a human being. Maybe you could train some basic animals at some basic things, but really you wanted someone to sort of holistically read a resume and make a decision about a hire. What were you going to do? What computer program could possibly have done that for you? Certainly not the stuff we built in 1999, but even back then the fact that it could tell the difference between a smile that had the crinkling of your supraorbital muscles, a real smile versus a fake one. There's so, there was something there that indicated an exciting possibility. So we have these autonomous machines making decisions under uncertainty. 
used to be a purely human experience. But another definition is um, it's a system, it's an artificial system that can make an expert human level decision cheaper, faster, and increasingly better than a human can make it. And the last one doesn't matter that much. It just, if it's 80% as good, then we're talking about reading one resume for five minutes to get a gist of it. Admittedly, most recruiters give you five seconds, but they only look at your name, your school, and your last job, uh, but, but deciding whether it's worth continuing to process. And we can probably all imagine what those three things are supposed to be picking up. But if you really wanted to make a deeper judgment or read a contract and decide, is there a loophole? This is a non-disclosure agreement. Are there any loopholes we need for review? That lawyer there takes about half an hour to read that contract. Well, GPT could probably read a thousand of those contracts in pure feed-in and produce answers in seconds. So we're in a world now actually where its performance in finding those loopholes is equitable to the average lawyer, if not exceeding it. And it's taking five seconds versus a half an hour. Now, most of what's happening there, this, this is going to be the important, might even call it third definition. What's going on there is routine, right? We've taken all the masses of resumes. We've taken all of the writing in the least modern history about what makes a great employee. And it's been encoded in literally trillions of parameters inside GPT. That's our best guess since they don't disclose the specifics, but it's not an unreasonable assumption. And within all of that, are a lot of implicit knowledge about the routine judgments we make in our life, everything we've ever written down. So here is this last statement, which is AI today owns the routine. What many of us built our career around, you know, imagine you're a radiologist or a junior lawyer or someone doing a lot of boilerplate code writing. These are all professional jobs. Most of them require going to university, maybe even advanced degrees to do really well. And when you say the boat's already sold, whatever it was three hours ago, as I keep jabbering, the boat has already sailed in the sense of routine labor. I don't know if the boat has landed yet on our shores, but it certainly is on its way. Uh, and it's going to hit different career verticals at different times. Medicine innately is slower due to its, its nature of regulation and the, the relative power of individual doctors, whereas other areas like coding, oh man, if you build a career, just if you believed what I said was a load of crap 10 years ago, maybe even 15 years ago, which is if I just get a computer science degree and learn how to code, I'm going to be set for life. Like every policy paper on the future of work put out by every consultancy, every government, go learn, teach kids how to code. And now we, here we are, not 10 years later, and 
boilerplate coding is on some level a dead art because it's all right there. You could literally just tell GPT the problem you want the code to solve, not what you need coded up, just the problem that it's supposed to solve. And maybe unsurprisingly for a system that on top of everything else, and in some ways Bard and Deep Brain, the Google side of things is even better at this, it's trained up on every coding competition, uh, all of the open source code that's out there. So you give it a problem to solve and it knows how to write the code. Does a human being probably need to check in on those contracts, on that code at some level? But again, if we built our careers around the routine, uh, yeah, the, the ship has sailed uh, and when it arrives, they're going to burn the holes down like there won't be that much left. What's left, though, is something that is amazing. And it is the thing that I think is poorly understood by AI researchers, by people outselling this, and by people just in the talent space. What's left is the non-routine, the ill-posed. What's left is exploration. And the amazing thing about that is there's a finite amount of the world we understand. And there is a literally infinite amount that we don't. I'd rather have a job that has to solve those that infinite set of unknown problems than the one where I'm just coming in and pulling a lever, even if it's a very complicated cognitive lever every day. There's, there's something exhausting but amazing about that as a possibility. So again, we could take time to really get nerdy about going from Bayesian sparse networks all the way through to complex transformer networks and, and attention models and, and some cool new stuff that's coming out. But the human side of it is everything we just went through. And, and so one of the, the questions I have to ask as a follow-up is like, how big of an impact do you see this having to the workforce? Like we, cause I think that is one of the big fears is like, oh, AI is going to take all our jobs is one consistent fear that I'm hearing. The yeah. other fear is like, oh, AI is going to take over the world. Like everything's over. Like people, we're not going to have brains anymore because it's just, we're all going to go to the AI and keep is going to tell us something. A bad actor is going to take over the algorithms and then everything's, it feels like a Marvel movie, baddie, that, that ending to the story. And so how much of that is true? You know, I, obviously we talked about the human side. So it, it sounds like that is true on the job side. This is going to eliminate jobs. This is going to materially change jobs that and, yeah. and could, in some instances, because of the sheer speed and the relative accuracy, is probably going to make some jobs no longer relevant. But it's also going to create, to your point, opportunities for a different type of jobs. But if we, you know, how far do you think that could go? So... You know, I'm not a futurist. That's not to say I don't have uh, not just opinions, but because I'm me, I'm always right. So they're more than just opinions. But, I, you know, in some ways, what I'm looking at is that we have a choice. But let's dismiss one thing. This isn't the Industrial Revolution. So the frequently what you hear are two separate AI doomers and AI utopianists. 
and AI is going to destroy the world. We can get into that. That's a completely separate uh, topic. But AI is going to destroy all the jobs. And interestingly enough, some of those very people would include the CEO of OpenAI. Uh, he doesn't talk about it that much anymore, but one of his other major projects is a company that's going to literally track all of us for the purpose of distributing a user, uh, universal basic income because he thinks almost everyone will be out of a job. Um, so this is a common idea. All the jobs go away because GPT or something like it will do all of the jobs and we'll all get paid to just, I don't know, be Eloy. And if you don't get the reference, read a book. And so there are so deep and profound problems with that. But there's a deep, profound problem on the other side of people who said, ah, it's just going to, it's going to create even more jobs than it destroys. Yeah, but what kind of jobs? That's where that choice is in front of us. So one thing we could do is take these emerging technologies, truly transformative, and just say, you know what we don't need any more of? Television writers. Fire them all and let GPT write all the scripts. Uh, I will admit that would be better than reality television. Um, <laughs> but, Plus one. Uh, yeah, um, not a fan. But it's that is a kind of decision because now all we're getting out of it is everything we put into it which means everything it creates is backward looking. Everything is coming out of the history of what we wrote. That's not to say that it can't create a new combination of words. Again, it's, it's truly amazing what GPT can do, but it is fundamentally the master of the routine. I would never use this to describe a human being, but it is an idiot savant. It knows everything and understands nothing. And I don't know that I want to watch those shows, but interestingly enough, that's the overwhelming kind of use case that I read about. You can have it write all the copy for your websites. You can have it prepare your slides for your pitch decks. You can have it go through and write your code for you. So in economic terms, we'd call this substitution. So it's all about substituting AI for labor with the idea it frees you up to go do something different. Uh, and they're right, there'll be plenty of jobs. You look at the job demand curve right now, people like um, the bunch of MIT's uh, economists have been looking at this for a while, David uh, Otter and Darren Asimoglu and others. The demand curve looks deeply problematic to me. It's huge demands at the extremes. Huge demands in dishwashing and elder care. Huge demands for the most elite, highly skilled workers. And negative everywhere else. Um, so everything that's routine is pushing, it can be done by AI, at least if it's knowledge-based, right? Digital robots are a lot harder to build than, than pure AIs. Uh, they're out there and they're working on it, but it's a lot harder to do. So building a robot that can wash dishes when the world is full of de desperate people needing to feed their families, all it does is drive wages down for those people. 
So there's going to be a huge increase in demand for, let me be blunt, truly horrible jobs. Jobs we do not want for our kids and you shouldn't want for someone else's. On the other hand, huge increased demand. People mistakenly think for high-skilled labor. But I'm telling you, it doesn't matter how high your skills are. If it's routine, the ship has sailed. What's actually reflected in that high demand space is creative labor. The ability to take an ill-posed problem and figure out what is going on. No one's ever looked at this problem before or fully understood it. How do we make a transformative impact? The people doing that work, increasing demand every year, exponentially increasing. So we choose to substitute, then we reinforce that chasm and that divide. And I know you want to come in so I don't just talk endlessly for hours and hours, but let me tease, we make a different choice. We build AI to augment people, to complement them in economic terms. And what we see instead is creative complementarity. Both the AI and the human produces more than they would have alone. You get multiplicative benefits. And that is so much harder to do, but it is everything that we should be focused on. And looking at the future of work through the lens of how do we use humans to augment AIs and use AIs to augment humans rather than just splitting the tasks up and assigning them around. That is the future I want. And it's where all of my work, I, I use BARD every day. And it's ex that is where all of my work with BARD is based. So I, th I think going back to the Unleashed speech that I, that I attended, I think you talked about how the definition of intelligence needs to be changed because a lot of these routine tasks are like knowledge that can basically be replaced with generative AI in which you've described as almost like autocomplete. And instead, the new definition of intelligence needs to be around like creativity. So then when I think about the future workers and the skills that they'll need to have, like how does that change what kids should be learning today. And I, I wasn't even planning on getting into this, but I'm just thinking of the future generations and how do you prepare them for that? Because- It is an inevitable question that comes up, particularly for someone who started a couple of education companies as well. And I have a couple of kids of my own and my wife is an education researcher. So yeah, I think it's, it's the natural next question. Not that, by the way, um, uh, I know Stephen keeps referring to the fact that he is apparently 130 years old and has had <laughs> a, an endless career. But as someone that's been around even longer than him, we can change. Even us oldsters, not everything, not all the time, but you'd be amazed at what's still on the table for change. But it's not so much things like learn how to do sigma algebra advanced mathematics or learn how to be do geo analysis for fossil fuel mining or whatever you think is important uh what's on the table are the things that really matter and matter when we're talking about educating kids what predicts positive life outcomes or is measurable but harder to measure than the answer to a routine question and finally, is changeable. 
at least at some point in your life. And uh, we call this meta-learning. These are qualities that help you learn how to learn. So instead of doing what we were foolishly doing, or at least stating 15 years ago, teach every single kid how to program, because somehow that will be a future-proof skill. Boy, was that stupid. And many of us said so at the time for pretty obvious reasons. Instead, why make the prediction? What if we, forgive my use of the term here, built kids who 30 years from now can figure out what they should learn themselves and are able to learn it? So what's at the heart of that? What's the foundation? We loosely break it up in our research into five areas, cognitive skills, social, creativity, metacognition, and um, emotional intelligence. And, and none of this is, or very little of it was really invented at us. I, I just happened to do, be two things at the same time. I had founded an education company focused on very young children. And I was the chief scientist of one of the first companies ever doing AI in hiring. And we had these two huge data sets at the hiring firm Guild, 122 million people. And we were looking at what predicted, not whether you get hired, that's easy. Your name, your school, your last job. It really is that simple. What predicted who would do great work? And what it turned out is your working memory span, resilience, a sense of purpose in your life, self-assessment skills, analogical reasoning. Are these things teachable in school? Absolutely, 100%. Are they learnable later in life? Hey, it's harder, but it's still there. There are demonstrated ways, for example, of increasing your resilience. It's brutal because the only way you can expand resilience is through experiencing failure. You're not willing to do that or you're not willing to allow that for your kids, then they don't build resilience. Is that the end of the story? You have a weakness and so you're done? No, actually, one of the coolest things in our research is no one thing predicts life outcomes. It is a diversity of strengths. And here's the coolest thing in, in this area of research from us. The thing that really distinguishes the most elite performers from the also rams which are people that have great lives most of us would envy, but boy, they were contenders for Nobel Prizes, for being huge entrepreneurial successes, and they never quite made it. The big difference is the elite performers were aware of their weaknesses and developed compensatory strategies. Another thing you can, it's a form of metacognition, another thing you can explicitly learn how to do. So when we look at, education, what should we be doing for our kids in preparation for a future where the routine kind of disappears? We need to build better people. And those people don't, it isn't that they don't know how to factorize a polynomial and they don't know the legal code of the state of California, but those are just tools. We're working on the craftsmen. Craftsmen without a tools are hobbled. They should know how to do it. I am so I get so much more value out of GPT and Bard because I know what I'm asking them about. But I don't always have all the facts and I can pull it out by working with them. Without those tools, I'm hobbled. But tools without a craftsman, 
why are we spitting out generation after generation of kids when our whole focus is have you mastered a set of tools? And we don't even know what the tools of the future should be. The craftsman will always be an important side of that equation. So that's pretty hand wavy sort of stuff, but we've written whole books and papers about the specific factors and, and what sort of interventions actually produce them. We could be teaching this in school. We could be developing it in our talent inside our organizations, but you have to be willing to because this stuff, you have to be willing to invest in it because these kinds of changes are challenging. So I read through notes of a presentation you gave, Vivian, and there was there was a snippet, just as I reflect on what you were just sharing, that just kind of encapsulates everything that you just shared with us. And to roughly quote you from the notes, I my takeaway was the job description of the future is creative, adaptive, not just problem solver, but problem discoverer, problem explorer. This is what I'm calling on all of you to actually invest in. And I, I feel like that is like essentially what you were just sharing with us. Like, yes, jobs will go away. Mundane, repetitive, routine kind of tasks will go away, but there's this huge opportunity for the creative mind and for us as a society to invest more into the creativity, the agility, all of these things that are traits that some that all of us have, some more than others, but that's where we should be investing in the future. Am I, am I getting that right? Absolutely. That, I, there's too much of an instinct. Uh, I, I see it particularly when I have conversations behind the scenes of, hey, this is going to be great because we're going to be able to trim a lot of fat and, and just get rid of a whole bunch of deadweight employees that are just doing routine tasks. And what I'm really calling on is amongst that population of call center workers and, and guys moving boxes around uh, and even programmers and junior lawyers, there are people who could do more. And if we were willing to invest in them, we as business leaders, as HR leaders, we're willing to put budget towards don't just do what I tell you to, but create. Help us discover new solutions to problems. And no, you do not have to have gone to Harvard or Oxford for us to be worth cultivating that in you. Uh, that is the change that I want to see happen. This idea that anybody can be amazing. Uh, and we need to actively foster that, along with another change, which is learn how to get that creative complementarity value out of AI. Stop thinking of it as a tool where you just take tasks and you automate them, tasks and you automate them. How can you bring humans and machines together and make them better than either were alone? Augmentive intelligence. AI. That's what it has to mean. So what, what I love about what you just shared is that there needs to be a mindset shift in the workforce. People can do more and, and we need to move from this belief that only the people that graduated from Oxford or Harvard have the ability to do amazing things to instead believing that anybody can. And similarly, historically, we've thought of the top teams as the ones that are made up of the most, you know, distinguished individuals. 
So I'm curious, like, you know, from the data that you have access to, is that true? Like, do you have any data on on what qualities make for the best teams? You know, I, I've been working too long in science and entrepreneurship and beyond to dismiss the idea that on some level, yeah, there's some different levels of contribution. People that are more experienced can get to solving a problem often more quickly than a, than a younger person. We have differences between ourselves. Some of us are smarter or know more facts or have better social skills. And so there are differences. And that turns out, though, not to be the end of the story. Uh, you, you do kind of end up with, in Silicon Valley, this this myth of the 100x engineer that does 100 times as much work as anyone else, or that elite manager that transforms a company. I mean, why are we paying CEOs thousands of times more than what we're paying their rank and file? Those sorts of things imply that these individuals make massive transformative contributions. We live in a world that may not too far in the future have trillionaires in it. Surely that means that people are a trillion times better than those that don't make that sort of money. But of course, that's not true. And actually, when you look at teams, they are invariably smarter than individuals. In fact, one study found that teams of what we call them average employees were at least as smart as the very smartest individuals. I'm sure there are some domains where that could break down. If you're doing really esoteric work in cosmology and none of your average players have a background there, they clearly they can't contribute. But what's interesting is that the right kind of team makes a real transformation in this. I. I've done a lot of work and we chatted about projects I've worked on using AI that were very much kind of me with my best friend, C3PO, going out and doing something. But the truth is, what I love is collaboration. And where that took me was research on collective intelligence. If, as I just said, the smartest uh, or, or even a relatively average team is as smart as the smartest individuals, and that's been found multiple times in research, then we can start to look what drives those returns. And trust me, I could go on and on about all this research and the fun I had doing it and all the fine little details, but we can actually get right to the punchline. When particularly during COVID and everyone was working from home and we had the chance to look at everybody interacting in real time, like our lives were going through these cameras, going through microphones. So there wasn't this moment at the office that I couldn't pick up as a mad scientist and analyze. I got to see everything. And it isn't just the cameras. It's, for example, asynchronous documents, working in Google Docs or on Dropbox or on Wikipedia or whatever it might be. You can look at how people interact there as well within a document. And what you find is really consistent across all of these different measures. The smartest teams are relatively small, you know, three, four, five people. If it's fewer than that, you're back to just having one person working by themselves, which has limitations. If it's much more than that, 
then yeah, you start to see people slacking off. So from an innovation perspective, particularly, you don't want 50 people working together. There isn't really a collaboration anymore. There isn't a, it's hard to define a collective intelligence there, but I'll be honest with modern artificial intelligence, that could really change, but we can get into that later. So we have these small teams and the next quality is that they are diverse. Not just me, this has been found in the research on collective intelligence over and over and over again. All things being equal, teams that bring different things together are, it, it's a real transformation. And in fact, in some ways, that's why you see this benefit, why a, an incredible, brilliant genius is genuinely better when they have the, the chance to collaborate with someone is because however smart they are, they don't know everything. They don't have insights on every kind of problem. They don't have life experience. So it's one thing for me to think I'm the smartest person in the room. I'm here to solve everybody's problem. Pretty common philosophy in Silicon Valley. It's another thing to recognize, wow, I actually don't really understand what the problem is. Because to be honest, I'm a wild outlier. I don't see the world the way other people do. I don't make decisions in the same way. There's all sorts of things I can't take into account. And it doesn't matter how smart you are. When you kind of work on the problem space that I and many others work in, you quickly realize you're not smarter than reality. You can't outthink all of the possibilities. It's just beyond anybody. And it's beyond any AI we've ever invented. So teams truly augment. So we call it complementary diversity. It isn't just that you randomly rolled up a, a D&D party of characters. It's that you actually built a team where everyone is bringing something unique and different to the table. That complementary aspect is phenomenally crucial. And you can actually see when you have really homogeneous teams, everybody has those same old sorts of qualities. Interestingly enough, sometimes they actually perform worse than a single person. The funny thing is, they the parts of your brain that should be skeptical of others starts to turn off and you become too trusting. You'd have been more skeptical of yourself on your own, but when you're seeing your mirror reflection three times over again and everyone's saying thumbs up, that's the greatest idea I've ever heard because that's what I would have said, then it turns out it makes people explore less and accept mediocre ideas more. So small teams, complementary diversity. And the last element is flat hierarchies. There's different ways of thinking about what this means. There was an influential paper in the proceedings of the National Academy of Science last year that found this idea of turn-taking. When people are collaborating, I mentioned, for example, analyzing asynchronous documents or in a Zoom meeting, for example, you're looking at how much, what percentage of the time are each member of a team actually, in a sense, taking the lead? Not just putting an idea out there, but deciding something, making a concrete and lasting contribution. And the flatter that hierarchy, the more everyone contributes, the smarter the team. Uh, in fact, the finding that we've been able to replicate 
is, for example, in science, uh, taking someone off of a very hierarchical team and putting them on a maximally flat team unleashes their productivity by as much as uh, two times. So just like that, going from one team to another doubles productivity of an individual. And that's in the context of science where it's already a bit of herding cats. Everyone has an instinct to contribute. But now we can add a last element, which is it's one thing to say everyone needs to contribute. But have you created a team where everybody can contribute? And, and this goes both ways. Do the individuals have the courage to speak up and say what they truly believe? Are they willing to, to say something which, boy, they themselves think, you know what, this probably isn't right. But if it is, it would change everything. Are they willing to pitch an outside idea knowing that it may not work out? Or do they know it will be held against them? And if it's the latter, then of course they don't say anything. And that's not just on them. Yeah, I, having had lots of, of students and, and desperately needing grad students to speak up, having lots of employees and desperately needing them to not wait months and months before they say, I don't, I don't know if this is a good idea. And so many cases out there in the world of people not speaking up when they really should have. You get it. They're afraid for their job. How do we transform that? So for me, this comes back to an idea that I'm sure everyone listening has heard of, which is psychological safety. I think sometimes this is read in the general public or in the business world as some sort of squishy idea. We don't want to hurt people's feelings. For me, it is do people feel safe to contribute? And by safe, I, I mean that it is okay to throw in crazy ideas, to pitch a joke in a writer's room that may be a little raunchy for this show, but hey, maybe it would make a transformation. Uh, to really throw out, you know, we, I know our research has this line of, of theoretical foundation but what if we got it wrong? What if the other side in this argument has something? Shouldn't we seriously, are you willing to say that? To tell your mentor that, you know what? I'm beginning to doubt that we're on the right track here. And how long does it take you to build that courage? The smartest teams have equal turn-taking. And that equal turn-taking is clearly a function of psychological safety even amongst elite performers who you would assume uh, are there to contribute. But hey, I'll be honest, I've been in rooms, I'm very self-possessed, but I've been in rooms where it's clear nobody's listening. So I shut up and I deal with my email instead because I don't need to pitch them my ideas and get no credit for it and get no help. Um, it's so easy to build a team and then steal everything away from them. And, and calling back to what we've talked about before, if AI is coming in doing all of the routine labor and the whole reason you hired this room of geniuses, or for that matter, average performers 
but it's who you've got. What is the point of telling them what to do? I can tell GPT and Bard what to do, and it will do pretty much what I want it to. Um, the whole reason to have those humans in the room is to help you explore. And we can go into a lot of different directions here. Like, what does that exploration look like? And where do people kind of fall apart in that process? But I also have a really cool new project here that we're explicitly using artificial intelligence to look at psychological safety. And, and I'm super excited about it because I've never seen anyone take a look like this before. Before we move on, Vivian, I'm, I've been over here just consuming everything that you've said, and I couldn't help but think back to earlier this year, we had Josh Burson, the kind of HR famous analyst, and he he was walking us through his new book, new at the time, it's, it's several months old now, and what he walked us through was was pretty mind opening and he essentially was his book irresistible focuses on what he is what what he is presenting as a new operating model call it a a network of teams operating model and it it really from my perspective was describing a shift from the traditional hierarchical uh organizational structure to more of a team-based uh, organizational structure. And then it goes on from there to describe how this network of teams should operate, some of the, I guess, the, the commonalities between the best companies that operate in this way. And, and what I love about what you're sharing is it's very complimentary to what, to what he shared in the sense that there is, you, you have your, your data and your research is, is showing that the importance of teams has never been higher. We talked about, you know, a lot about what, what AI is doing and, and how it's going to change the workplace. And so the way that we work together will need to change. And as a result, it's really going to, it's going to be critical to identify how do you get the, the most out of your teams or how do you put together the smartest teams to tackle particular problems. And, and so what, what I love about what you're sharing and what I think you're about to continue uh, going into at a more deeper level is what is required, like specifically, how should these teams specifically work together and what are some preconditions to how they work together in, in order? Because it's one thing you know, to, to change the way you operate, put agile rhythms and cadences in place, create new, new language at the company to describe how you work and everything being team oriented. But as managers and individuals, if we are not, if, if, if we're not accustomed to working this way and shedding some behaviors that maybe may inhibit the, the progress that you can make in this kind of team-based work, you're gonna, there's, it's going to be a struggle. And these companies may not see the results that they're looking for. Um, or, you know, in, to use Burson's language, you might not be irresistible. You might not be a talent magnet because <laughs> it's not a psychologically safe environment. And so, and, and so I, I, I definitely want to hear more about what's required. But before we go down that path, what percentage of the companies that you've been exposed to, or, or I guess put otherwise, how, what percentage of companies are working in this way are really kind of harnessing the power of teams? 
the way that you're describing. Yeah, it it isn't. For one thing, it's a small percentage. And even then, I think we're talking about, in a sense, segments, domains within companies. To say, let's take a fairly concrete example of, of Google or Alphabet style companies. X is another one I know. There are elements, particularly in X, where the whole point is this kind of moonshot concept. So there are lots of little teams working on different moonshots. It's almost like a, a bit of a DARPA model internalized inside of a for-profit company. And maybe it truly works only in the sense that Alphabet can fund it. Can it can it stand on its own legs? But partially that's because this is a huge change even at relatively new companies, you know, which tech tends to be a newer world, maybe not IBM, but even uh, gray hairs like uh, Google and Microsoft have only been around for so long and, and newer companies with even shorter tenures. There's still, you come out of, with your Harvard or Stanford MBA and you're thinking, I am here to run things. I'm not here to turn over the reins to other people. And I think that's an incredibly hard thing to come to terms with is this idea. I'm not here to tell my employees what to do. The whole reason I hired these amazing people is to let them make their own decisions on these problems. So for me, the role of management in that world is one of coordination and coaching and alignment. If you switch from hiring individuals to hiring teams, for example, as an HR concept, well, that's hard. Uh, it parallels a kind of transformation. In education, we know that active learning, like the Socratic method, is much better than passive lecture-style learning. But everybody hates it even though they learn more. And paradoxically, the students think that they learn more in the passive, even though they clearly don't and buy a lot. So same thing here. It's harder being a manager in this seemingly flipped world in which you are nurturing the growth, right? You're, you're out there creating environments when people can be successful, rather than, again, telling them what to do. Because the moment you do that, all of the benefits of collective intelligence go away. All of the benefits of having put hard work into psychological safety go away the minute the boss comes in and says, this is how it's going to be. There are moments in emergencies where clearly people need to be able to do that and need to be able to create some consequences and urgency. But never mistake that for, I need to pick a winner in this horse race. So one of the things we actually looked at in terms of leadership was inspired by the DARPA model. We looked not just at the individual team level, but how do those teams interact? And interestingly enough, what we saw is kind of like the teams themselves where you need everyone kind of contributing in flat hierarchies. You need those individual teams 
to be able to occasionally bump up against one another. This probably even sounds crazier to many people, people doing traditional management, but I'd rather have three teams working seemingly on the same redundant thing independently than think, oh, God, that's what a redundant waste. I want them to be in there. If we can get the productivity gains out of AI that I see in my own work, then allowing each of those teams to be their own little incubator and not necessarily competing with one another, but actually quite different. I just want to create a little separation so they each one can cook and occasionally make contact with one another. And in those contacts, they transmit information. So one of the things that I think has never really been a part of a manager's role before, but I think is crucial here now, is I I need a, a role, a kind of a manager that peeks in on individual teams and thinks, this is the right moment for these two groups to talk to each other. I'm in, I've intentionally kept them apart. But now I think one of them is really heating up but the other one's got an interesting idea and it's time for them to talk to one another. And then you need to break them apart again. You need to say, wow, team A is killing it. They have come up with a series of ideas. And even though it sounds insane, now it's time to pull someone out of team A, move them someplace else and bring in a new person. Uh, again, our research and the collective research in this field of collective intelligence shows the minute a new person comes in, even to an elite team, while the, let's take sciences, for example, while the number of papers goes up over time with an elite team, the number of breakthrough discoveries goes down. You take one new person and put them on that team and their discovery rate jumps again. Um, wow. You need sparks Maybe not a fire, but you need those sparks. And your job as a manager is how do I keep a fundamental tension between trust uh, and diversity within my team uh, and keep it at just the right balance? And then at a meta level, how do I keep that same tension going across teams working in a segment? So go ahead, Daniel. So I, I've worked at, uh, I guess, really like three sizes of companies. I've worked for a startup with Steven. We had less than 10 employees. I've worked for a startup that had probably like 120. And then I worked for a company that was probably like around 1,000. And what I've I've noticed is that the smaller the team that I've worked on, it feels like the more productive we are. So then I started to think, what made our team at Workify when I worked with Steven so productive. And I think of the idea of, of turn taking. So we would have daily standups and every week, somebody different would lead that daily standup. We would have weekly meetings and every week, somebody different would run that weekly meeting, whether it was Steven or it was an intern or it was one of the software engineers. Every week, somebody was, somebody different was running that meeting and we would have there was a, a a section of that weekly meeting called collective intelligence and somebody different, whoever was leading the meeting would present on something that they were working on that they were really proud of. And, you know, we were a small team. So if we're, if we're hearing one of the software engineers talk about like their work, 
me as a marketer, it might not be super relevant to what I'm doing, but there are things that you're like, oh, like I didn't even know that we were doing that with the product. And it sparks that idea like, oh, maybe in our landing page, we should add a line on this. Or maybe it's, you know, Steven and, and the client success team, and they're sharing some feedback that they heard from a client in one of the one of their big presentations or something like that. And it's like, oh, we've never described it that way. Like maybe there's something that I can steal there. Maybe that's a keyword that we should start to target. And I don't know, as you were describing a smart team, I was thinking back to that Workify experience and why it works so well. There was the psychological safety because every week, regardless of who you were, if you're an intern, you're still leading that meeting and everyone's looking at you as an equal. So that intern now is, now feels comfortable speaking up. Uh, so we had this intern named Denny and um, he was, I don't know if he was like an electrical engineer, smart guy, super freaking smart. He was probably like 19, 20 when he was interning at Workify. <laughs> and like, just, I don't know if I was a fly in the wall and seeing him jump in and challenge like a, a very senior software engineer, you'd think like, man, this guy's crazy. Like, what's he doing? But that was just a normal interaction at Workify. So I'll shut up. I feel like Steven, you have something to say, but um, yeah, I, I feel like you hit on a lot of the 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 things that really make that, that made Workify work whenever uh, we had like our core team together back in the day. Well, and to, to build off of that, like we, you know, to your point, it's a small team. And so it's easy, it's easier. I won't call it easy because uh, it is intentional work to create a psychologically safe environment and to maintain that trust. Um, that, it's hard <laughs> and, and it requires it's work. It's hard and it's intentional. Those are both great terms for it. And it doesn't come naturally at all. Well, it, hence where my, my next question. And, and so in order to do that in a larger organization or, or even more doing it at, at scale with thousands and thousands of managers or tens of thousands of managers, you know, how, how can you is there a way to get data on all this? Like, I, I, I'm not sure without the inputs or some way of identifying, okay, psychological, or in, in an engagement survey is once a year or twice a year, right? Yeah. And so it's like, oh, well, like it, psychological safety is down and we need to, we need to put in time and energy here. In the traditional engagement survey approach, by the time you get results out to managers, and ask them to action plan, like months have gone by. So that's not really a solution for what you're describing or what I, what I think I'm hearing, which is like, this is a continuous cycle of assessment and ensuring that we are maintaining this level of trust and psychological safety. So I'm just curious, like what tools are out there? How are, is anyone working on this kind of data? Yeah, so I got a couple of different things to say. Uh, one is purely selfish, but hey, a lot of it is just some solid research. So let's start with the selfish one because it's the most direct answer to your question, which is um, about three years ago, I started working on tools for doing natural language processing for all sorts of reasons, but it started with actually suicide detection in teenagers. And then we began looking for measuring depression. But along the way, as we were looking for, for example, people's social media use or Facebook use or 
We began plugging into emails. All of this was people sharing, you know, content with it, or in some cases, existing data sets that researchers can make use of. We could see more and more picking up, being able to model people's personalities based on the conversations that they're having with one another. Also, that turn-taking I mentioned, being able to take that into account and being able to look at some challenges we know exist inside companies. Can we use natural language processing, for example, to look at things that are just big problems in our society, like essentialism? Do you think women have what it takes to be risk takers? And if you don't, then it's really hard for women perhaps to break through in working with you. And so we began building all of these little AIs that could listen to people chat while they worked and uh, make observations about them. Now, these are like sort of pure mad science things. They're not built for HR terms. But the more we worked on that and started applying them to actually some core medical problems that I've been working on in, in some of my companies, we also began noticing that we could do this for groups of people. What is psychologically going on with this team of five people or this group of 20 collaborating on a sales project? And one of the most obvious things, given all the other work we were doing, is could we measure psychological safety in these teams? Not only the individual you know, personality qualities, which I would perhaps admittedly feel a little uncomfortable about sharing with an employer just because it never really helps. We're assuming someone's a psychology expert if they're reading this stuff, but being able to actually go in and identify, wow, this team is really low in psychological safety and then supplying a recommendation. But if, if you did, if you could do one thing, move Anna from team A to team B, and we guarantee her productivity will jump because we can clearly see that she's not contributing, but she has the capability of doing so. Her contributions are never getting picked up. They're never going anywhere. And so we're actually built a little tool, a, a dashboard that takes absolutely free form uh, conversation in Slack and in emails and whatever people are willing to share it and you know it, it using uh, hashes. Everything gets encrypted. No human being ever reads this stuff. But from all of that, we can see. Well, from the data, forget your org chart. Here's the actual organization of your org team uh, of your companies. Here are these teams. Plus, here are these sort of big stretched out non teams. We're still stuck in a world where when we're small, we hire collaborators. And as we grow, we start to build a factory line. And we start thinking of our next hire as, God, I really need someone to just push content on this channel. I need the next person to write this boilerplate code. And we, start th we stop thinking of them as our collaborators. They're just cogs in the machine. So we can work on changing that. And we see that a lot in, in our data. But the core thing is when we identify those teams from their actual natural interactions, no surveys, uh, no, hey, give us a, here's a little spark survey, you know, here's three questions every day. We could throw that into the channel, but it turns out we don't need it. Just listening to people chat with one another, we can measure psychological safety and even identify simple moves 
that will actually kick productivity back by unlocking people that are trapped in teams that aren't listening to them. In, in um, Vivian, is this commercial facing? Like, is this, you know, this is a product that people can buy and, and tap so in? This is How does it work? So it's interesting because it's an one of those things. It's an outgrowth of my company, Dionysus Health. Well, as the name implies, this is a healthcare company. We've built AI that leverages natural language and epigenetics to look at things like Alzheimer's and postpartum depression. We absolutely are building tools for companies to make use of our services. But what we've decided is we built a nonprofit called Dionys uh, called the Socos Foundation um, Data Trust. And we've donated a bunch of our code to the data trust. Uh, and the trust is building this system so that companies can get this information. I don't want to imply just because it's a nonprofit that we're necessarily always going to be able to give this away for free. But I thought it was important enough for us to make this available in a way that organizations could see what's going on without disclosing any private information about individuals, but at a team level, this team is struggling and it has low safety. And here are some recommended transformations. So we built a whole dashboard. It's been incredibly cool. Our first ever customer was Enron because all of their emails were made public after the lawsuits. And so mm -hmm. we, onboarded Enron and we looked at the teams that actually exist. We could see their stress levels inside the teams taking off as the scandal hits and the court cases start. And we could see teams, including the core uh, executive team, being profoundly low on psychological safety. But we could see moments where it changed. So all this is out there. If anyone visits, so again, it's gonna sound strange, but if you visit Dionysus Health, and there's a whole page on the data trust. And we're looking for any organizations that want maybe to pilot this and see what's going on. We're in talks with some groups out there that are working with large organizations and about ways of sharing this out. But yeah, it's this has been my life is building philanthropic projects that make people's lives better and just putting them out there to help. Uh, I, well, I, I'm not here to pick winners. Anyone who's crazy enough to want to transform the way that their companies work, then reach out uh, to either the socos.org uh, or Dionysus Health. And I'd love to chat with you about what we could do and what insights we could gain inside your company. Well, we love what you're doing. And this has been an amazing conversation. It's such a hot topic, Vivian. Like we can't, everyone we talk to, the topic of AI comes up. Psychological safety has been coming up for the last, the last three years. And so I can see there being a huge demand. And if that, if this ever you know, get to the point where you have such demand that you uh, you productize this and you need a startup CEO. I may know a guy uh, who's on the market for that kind of job. But uh, in all seriousness- I always love that. I, I should be in charge of nothing. So I love the idea of finding a grown-up that can uh, make this stuff. I, I like collaborating. I love inventing. Uh, but yes, adults should be in charge.
And, and so unfortunately we, it's that time in the conversation, our extended conversation where we turn the corner and bring the conversation to a close. We have a couple of traditions left before we, we wrap up. The first is uh, rapid fire questions. Same set of questions we ask every guest. They evolve over time, but have largely stayed the same. You ready to do this? Let's do it. All right. How do you define a modern people leader? What are the traits and characteristics? A modern people leader is can actually be multiple things. Uh, coaches that really help people become the best version of themselves. And accountants, somebody's got to make some decisions about how budgets get made and make hard choices. That has to be there. And then there's a role for visionaries. Just be a role model for what's possible. Those are modern leaders to me. Love it. If you could go back in time and talk to a 22-year-old you, what career advice would you give yourself and why? 22 years old, I was on my way to homelessness. So boy, there are so many things I would have said to myself. One of which is, it's going to be a long time before your life gets better again, but it's going to happen. In fact, I'd rather go back 40 years and tell my parents that from the start. The <laughs> other is all that doubt you have about yourself is valid and you can't let it make your decisions for you. Eventually, you just have to go out and think there's something bigger than me in this world and I need to keep helping, uh, even if it feels like nothing I do matters. Yeah. Wow. It's so scary to let go of that. I, uh, I've had my own journey. That feels like a continuous journey for me. Yeah. Um, next question. Is there anything you believe to be true? This might be a hard one for you. Is there anything that you believe to be true about the world of work, but don't yet have the data to support? Wow. Sure. I mean, something that's fundamental. My biggest foundational belief. Everyone's amazing. Uh, it's easy to say anyone could be amazing. But I think it lets us off the hook. Everyone is amazing. Even though most of us will never have the chance to lead the life to be that truly amazing person, it isn't just them or me that owns that. We should all own a piece of that. And therefore, it's all of our responsibilities to make certain everyone gets that chance. I love that. So I think this is the first episode where we've done like two parts or we've had two recordings that we're combining into one episode. So I just first want to thank you for, for making the time for us. This has been, uh, uh, I would say probably one of my favorite episodes that we've done so far. I feel like I've learned a ton and I, I guess if, if they're, who else do we need to bring onto the show? Like, who who are you looking to when you're when you're trying to like learn about things related to the future of work? Like, is there any anybody else that we need to bring onto the show? Wow, my goodness, I'm a solipsist. I'm not certain if anyone else exists if they're not right mm -hmm. in front of me all the time. Um, what a brutal question to ask someone borderline autistic. Um, I mean, the the thing I want to understand is not always who has the most groundbreaking insights, 
but also why do people make the choices that they make, even if I disagree with them? And so in that sense, I think there's a variety of, of leaders out there. I, I know this sounds like a trivial thing to say, but bringing Elon Musk in, whom I disagree with on so many points, uh, even as I respect his worth ethic and just understand, set aside your audience and your Twitter bullshit. Why do you do what you do and what do you truly believe about it? Do you is the world really just a big Ayn Rand novel to you? Or, you know, is is it is do you truly see that there is this tiny number of elite players that are worthwhile and everyone else should just strap in for the ride? Um I, I just don't see a world uh growing the way I want it to grow unless everyone's contributing. And I know that there's a whole crowd of Silicon Valley, pretty hardcore libertarians that feel wildly different about that world. And I'd like to understand that because to be honest, it's one of the biggest counters to the way I see the world. Uh, and I'm enough of a scientist that I'm not gonna trust myself if I don't get the best counter argument uh, being laid out, uh, no straw men here. So I'd love, to hear you guys talk with people that aren't here to say a lot of the things that you hear a lot at HR conferences, but are here to say what they at least believe to be hard, irrefutable truths. I disagree with them. But if I don't hear it, then I feel like I'm hiding from a potential truth rather than confronting it. Wow. there, there I believe there's a moment for every entrepreneur in this case, I'm talking about Daniel and I as co-founders of the Modern People Leader, when you realize I have been thinking way too small about our goals. <laughs> and what I love about that guest is I just had that moment. I was like, holy shit, she's, you're right, Vivian. Like we, we need to totally raise the game in terms of uh, the profile we're looking for. So I love that recommendation. Now we just need to manifest it into uh, to happening. We do. Yeah. It, I mean, th there are other people that don't have quite that same profile, but he makes the point of the kind of person is yes. we should really confront our assumptions on, on every side, even in the things we believe the most. I believe that what we have shared here is going to hold true, but let's go kick the tires. Yeah, I agree. All right, so on to our last tradition of the show, which is one word or phrase close. So we all respond with a word or a phrase from the episode that we want to close with, and it can be anything that comes to mind. Who wants to go first? I'll go first. I'm going to go with learning and growth. And this has been, I agree with Daniel, this this has been an amazing conversation, amazing episode, so amazing we we extended into a two-part series and I've just learned so much. And I, and as I learn more, I I'm growing in my understanding in my, in, in what I, how I can contribute to, to this massive shift that that's just getting started. So those are, that's, those are my two, that's my phrase learning and growth. Yeah. Um, a phrase it's easy as a, theoretical neuroscientist to throw out hoity-toity uh, 
uh, phrases that uh, only you might ever say. Um, if you give me a tiny latitude, here's my extended phrase. If you want an amazing life, you have to give it to someone else. Uh, and that would be what an amazing leader in the kind of workforce that we were just talking about, that's their job. Yeah, I'm letting that one sink in. I don't know if I can top that. I'm going to go with collective intelligence. The one thing that you said earlier that has really stuck with me is that if you put a room of average performers on a team, collectively, they're going to be smarter than somebody who might be looked at as a genius. I had never really thought of it that way, but it's so true. And I, I think we were catching up with, uh, we were doing like a customer development interview the other day. And the person that we were talking to had worked for companies that I guess were better at at harnessing the collective intelligence, but where she felt like there weren't as high of performers. And she had this realization recently that even though in her mind, they might not have been as as smart, um, they were able to achieve way more because they were better at harnessing that collective intelligence. So collective intelligence. It's a good one. Definitely. Well, well, guys, thank you. Yeah, thank you. This has been an amazing discussion. And Vivian, we wish you the best in all the ventures and all the projects you have uh, going on. And we, if you're open to it, we would love to have you back on the show sometime and uh, bring others into this conversation. Well, gosh, if you have me back for, uh, what are we up to, a, a 13th hour, uh, then my phrase is going to have to be pompous jackass. Um. But uh, if you're foolish enough to invite me back or God forbid your audience actually asked for it because boy, that's going to tell you something about how, uh, uh, you know, how much punishment they can endure, then uh, immediately I will come back on uh, and, and climb up on my soapbox and pontificate again. Well, thank you so much. It's been a blast. Thank you guys. I loved it. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for, for tuning in to another episode of the Modern People Leader. We we really, really appreciate it. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star rating. It would mean the world to us. And connect with us on LinkedIn. We wanna we wanna know what you think about the show. And uh, yeah, you can you can find links to both of our profiles in the show notes. So thanks again for listening and, and see you on the next episode.